0: is me myself and disaster the show all about disasters with a human focus from hurricanes to humanitarian issues we journey across fault lines to explore
1: trends in disaster preparedness response and recovery over to you josh and andrew hello and welcome back to me myself and disaster the show where we talk all things disaster with a human focus The world is watching a very difficult situation unfold in the Middle East at the moment with a humanitarian crisis of a significant scale almost inevitable. This current war underlines how crucial it is to find ways to save lives across conflict lines. Today, we're joined by a disaster resilience expert who started a project back in 2011 with negotiations between Jordan, Israel, and Palestine, which have since led to cooperative joint training and emergency management arrangements. Andrew, who's joining us on the show today to talk us through this intriguing project? Josh, today on the show, we're joined by
0: Dr. Albrecht Beck, Director of Prepared International and former United Nations staff member. Albrecht started the project while he was working for the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA. He has since worked for NATO, lectured at a university, and started a consulting firm, Prepared International. Albrecht joins us today to share his work to improve disaster diplomacy between nations in the Middle East, through which he was recently awarded the Averted Disaster Award for 2023. We'll also discuss some of Albrecht's other work, including
1: disasters in developing island nations. Let's get into this one here with Dr. Albrecht Beck on Me, Myself and Disaster.
0: Dr. Albrecht Beck joins us now from Germany. Albrecht, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much. It's a pleasure being with you.
0: So, firstly, congratulations on that recent award. I imagine this work would not have been at all easy, and particularly given the, the current conflict in the region. But can you take us through a bit of an overview of, of the project in the Israel um, Palestine Jordan area that led to this award? Thanks for that.
2: Yes, it was definitely not an easy one to, to build it up. It's called the, the Professional Dialogue on Life Saving and Emergency Preparedness between the three uh, governments. Um, It entails simply trying, despite all the political differences and also conflict, uh, to have the ability to cooperate on issues that are non-political, meaning emergency preparedness, life-saving, and that should also entail conflict situations. Exactly then it's very important, but obviously also natural disasters. They work together on trainings, on common standard operation procedures, all these topics, uh, despite uh, the differences. And that was the important thing that we can support each other on topics that should be outside of politics.
1: So be really interested to understand I guess what was some of the catalyst for this work. We we know there's obviously um, there is obviously risk within the Jordan uh, River Valley for, with with earthquakes. Was that the driver was it the local risk of the natural hazards in that area that really was the catalyst that kind of drove this conversation to say hey we need to do something in this area. We need to start dialogue and partnership to manage some of this was or, or was it the conflict or I guess Help our help our listeners understand what was the the beginning of this work. Just exactly, I think the
2: key point was to to show them that they have common interest, and that was mainly based on the natural disaster risk there. Uh, from the background, it, it was after two thousand six. It uh, was again a high tension time of high tension and conflict. Um, There there was no communication allowed between these parties anymore, especially between the the Israeli and Palestinian on the official side. So it was important to to build bridges and show them that there is a common interest uh, for all of them. And uh, despite the tensions, uh, uh, it was after some time it was clear to them Everything else than cooperating uh, could lead to a disaster in the disaster, and there's a need to be able to support civilians despite conflict, and I think that trigger uh, was especially on the earthquake, we, this risk is very clear to them. They're in the middle, nearly in the middle of uh, the earthquake cycle in the region, meaning mm. a larger-scale uh, earthquake could happen any day. Uh, but afterwards, it was also becoming clear that, that during conflict, but also during uh, disasters more and more climate-related, like floods that they are not very prepared in the in a desert environment for, uh, that are all topics where they need to be able to cooperate. And that was really then the trigger for them to cooperate despite all the problems.
1: For those that might not be familiar with the regional brick, is is it is what would be the number one natural hazard that really would kind of put that region on edge? is Is it earthquakes? What is that kind of risk profile for people that might not be you know familiar with the area?
2: That's exactly the case. The, the earthquake risk is very high. There are two fault lines that could trigger large-scale uh, destruction on, on all uh, three sides. <clears throat> so that's the, the main topic for them. But also nowadays, uh, you know, there are more and more disasters. They are not really prepared because they're not used to it. Uh, think about recent uh, snowfall in the region mm. that had been last year really uh, major effect on, on uh, even emergency services and obviously a desert area, not used to to use winter tires, snow chains, or something like that. Uh, that's something that is more used in my region, but definitely not for the desert area of the mm. Middle East.
1: Albrecht, I think one of the other really interesting things that we want to unpack with you today, this whole notion of disaster... Pl- Diplomacy might not be something that's really kind of a known topic for people working in the domestic space in the Asia Pacific in 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 kind of emergency management, but when you look at that international scale, obviously disaster dis- diplomacy is a is a really big kind of topping, and it's something that y- yourselves are obviously experts within. And I was reading an article that really started to unpack the importance of trust in this space. Can you kind of help us understand in in this project in this initiative what trust meant? Uh, for success and how Trust actually built this project uh, to succeed at the end of the day.
2: Just thanks, yes. Uh, disaster diplomacy uh, had been a little bit discussed uh, for some time, but it disappeared again from the agenda, unfortunately, because uh, from a disaster management point of view, or a disaster preparedness point of view, uh, for us it's grows in importance because obviously climate change uh climate conflicts, related conflicts, all uh, need uh, stronger preparedness between conflicting parties uh, to stop this cycle of disaster and conflict. And as you mentioned, uh, I also see it the same way. Trust is absolutely important. Mm -hmm. If you cannot build trust, uh, a real cooperation, a longer term cooperation with real effects will not be possible simply. Uh, In the dialogue uh, between Israel Palestine and Jordan, obviously, Uh, was no trust in the beginning existing between the parties. Too too much has happened uh, between all uh, involved uh, and especially also, why would a disaster manager start cooperating if he's uh, threatened by legal consequences by his own government? So there must be a a real strong trust existing before that is not uh, developed. That cannot happen. So there was the importance uh, in the beginning to build trust, obviously, between the, the facilitator of this dialogue and the individual parties, which was my uh, myself as part of the UN in the beginning. And there we, we saw uh, the trust was both coming from uh, 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 neutrality uh, that was uh, seen in the facilitator, but also it was important to be shown as one of them meaning a disaster manager, somebody mm. who has a technical knowledge who works with them on technical improvement that really can help them not somebody who goes there to, to be the big mediator, big AAB in the media and then have, have a political outcome. The political outcome was for the disaster managers not a topic in the beginning it was yeah. a real effect on the ground and the other one was obviously the trust between the parties which was even worse and more difficult. How should this start? And there it was important that uh, we had a lot of individual discussions with actors, making sure that the political field was not referred to in the meetings, that politics went really out of that, and that they could all see uh, that there are people who mean it for real. In that case, it was very important to to, to have an Israeli counterpart who really uh, reached out to the Palestinian side and uh, was for them credible in being interested that something changes. So that mm. made a real de- difference in that case. And another point was, in fact, uh, with all these different trainings, uh, participation in foreign projects, and so on, they simply became a lot used to each other. So uh, we had times where the Israeli and the Palestinian counterparts were at least once a month traveling together. So they were a little bit getting a customer to each other, learn to know yeah. uh, the person behind the flag, meaning the real private person. And that over the years was very important to build this, to make sure they stay together, even in situations like the we have currently, make sure there are at least weekly meetings, even if they might only be possible to uh, take place online uh, there can every time gap that would be in between the cooperation could lead at the end uh, to a failure. So this is also nowadays at this very moment very important to make sure this continues and make sure it stays also outside of politics. And by this we, we build trust between at least individuals that other than the backbones that also the organizations can follow.
1: I think it's fascinating because I, I almost get a sense that there's a lot of crossover between the work in that disaster uh, emergency management space, disaster risk reduction space, and that kind of dis- diplomacy space. Because we all know that in disasters, building that trust and having those relationships with community and the people we're dealing with really is the becomes the currency or the credibility you deal with in those in those interactions. And I, I'd imagine for you, Albrecht, that there would have been a lot of tense conversations to start with and I know some of our listeners may have been in spaces where you know you're having some of those really robust and tense conversations and I think you probably would have seen the pinnacle of that you know dealing with Palestine and Israel how do you as an operator deal in that space how do you in a sense come out of that with a positive outcome at the end of the day?
2: good point sometimes you need a need a lot of stamina in the beginning we had everything security forces entering meetings collecting one of the parties and uh, all these uh, issues in the beginning uh, it leads needs time and uh, mm. you need to understand all the interests of the different actors we started with a stakeholder mapping of more than 200 individual stakeholders wow. in the region uh, from the outside when you start you see there is Israel there is Palestine and there is Jordan <clears throat> but Obviously, there are very, very a uh, huge diversity of organizations and individuals with different interests, uh, and you need to understand them um, to to maneuver in this environment uh, and mediate and uh, try a lot of different pathways until you, you found the right one uh, that makes it happen. So yeah, it's not easy, and it's it's really a full time job to to maneuver mm. in that and it's important that you, you follow a little bit also your heart as disaster manager see the goal really to, to help the people because uh, the Middle East I mean the conflict is more than well known and there are a lot of actors with individual interests uh, that you have to go around to, to come to a really good conclusion mm-hmm. I think
0: Your story makes me really quite interested because there's a lot of countries out there who are in conflict zones and they do have significant disaster risks um, Israel and Palestine and Jordan are not the first to sort of experience this type of relationship. Is there any advice that you would give if you were in emergency management going into one of these countries or states that had that um, conflict with another state, dealing with a disaster risk? What sort of strategies or advice would you give them? I
2: think the the, the number one advice would be never give up. Uh, There is no straight way forward in uh, conflict-affected countries uh, where you work on disaster management, disaster risk management, and then try to understand uh, not only the environment, but uh, especially the different stakeholders and their interests. Uh, don't take the, the, the agenda of your own organizations, if you work for one of the big ones, uh, as uh, the, the one you should implement. You need to find out on the ground what can be done and how you do it. And uh, it is needed to have a long term engagement. I think everybody of us was uh, in our field of work. We have a lot of these individual trainings, uh, but in such an environment, individual training or individual event uh, will not lead uh, anywhere. I mean, you really must make sure there's a long term engagement given. That was, in fact, often for us, also later on with other scenarios, uh, for example, in Africa or in Asia, uh, an issue and problem. I mean, getting the really funding for long term engagements that can lead in this environment to something is often, unfortunately, very hard, uh, especially for smaller organizations. it's easy to understand donors. I mean, uh, investing a lot of money, long term binding funding to environments where you never can guarantee that there's really an outcome is yeah. also, from a donor perspective, hard. But otherwise, uh, it will not work out. Uh, unfortunate as it is, but the long term engagement is needed.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting point. And I think um, I've seen before a lot of those I guess, opportunities to volunteer overseas and they say, I'll oh, come over for a weekend or a week to sort of build a house or help out. And you just kind of think, like, what difference is that? Like, I mean, sure, it's making some minor difference, but to make meaningful change, you've got to be there for the long term. It's not some sort of trip and a holiday. You've got to be there and actually have build those relationships and, and really be part of it. And your project was there for, for quite a long time and, and still involved, I understand. But um, part of the, the efforts as you went on was to build um, training courses and you uh, had a joint exercise. Can you take us through um, what were those, what, what, what did they involve? In fact, I think the, the, the training courses, the exercises
2: were always a little bit a backbone of the project. Uh, we started with a, uh, with a project, uh, in fact, that was of the German government. And we as the UN these days were just invited to hop on board on supporting Israel to prepare for natural disaster impact. Um, we, after the training, the, the, even if the UN was not very welcomed in the beginning in the environment, uh, um, This was clear to the Israeli government, the counterparts. uh, We need the UN on board and we said more than happy to support. But obviously your operational theater uh, also involves Palestine. I mean, because of the border issue in case of an international assistance situation, uh, there is another uh, part. And uh, we we stayed in contact simply after this training. And uh, at a certain point, the Israeli counterpart said, yes, That's simply a fact. There is nothing to discuss about that. Palestinians must be on board here, otherwise we cannot get this organized. Uh, There is administration, at least from their point of view, on the other side of the wall, and uh, they need to know how we can cooperate. Uh, They need to be strong enough, which I found a very positive step of the Israeli counterparts. Is that the the more we cannot operate in these areas, uh, the more the the Palestinian administration have to be able to handle the issues, So they need also to be built up in this case. Mm. And so one training was really the, the, the start of the process. And uh, later on, we organized a tabletop exercise where we already planned it like that, that uh, both sides need to understand uh, in this tabletop exercise uh, together or nothing. So... Um, and in this tabletop exercise, in fact, uh, on one of the official dinners, the, the both parties uh, came and said, "Like, let us step outside." And they said, "Like, yeah, <laughs> dear UN, uh, we need a cooperation model. As we have political problems, you need to start facilitating our common emergency preparedness." Uh, later on, we had different kinds of exercises that are a little bit culminated. Now, this year, exactly during the week when the, the dialogue became 10 years old, uh, was a EU-financed uh, large-scale exercise that involved uh, a lot of also uh, outside governments that played exactly the situation often earthquake and uh, the the situation, how can we get across borders? How can we open the wall? How can uh, also, for example, um, populations that are living in what you would call no man's land that belongs neither Mm -hmm. uh, under the Israeli nor the Palestinian administration, how can international assistance reach to these places? How can we operate? Who can operate in these areas? And also looked into to strengthening search and rescue medical emergency medical teams and again uh, the the exercise led in the end uh, to the conclusion of uh, all three sides, including the Jordanian side. Um, we need simply to to cooperate and we need another five years and we need to uh, roll it out to more teams, become uh, make it more operational, train more together uh, because they are aware that uh, any kind of disaster, if it's conflict, obviously, or uh, natural disasters. They can strike any time and often also in these environments. I mean, there is obviously uh, there's also a lot of industry around and the preparedness for technical accidents in uh, occupied areas, for example, is simply very, very limited. So uh, it was a good outcome. Again, this trainings event, bring them together in a non-political way and uh, uh, Every time as I realized now we need to do more and it uh, gives a push
0: despite the problematic situation and was was conflict ever part of the exercise? I think you mentioned there um, there was a sort of conflict element. was there sort of a discussion of if there's conflict, how does that um, i guess change the nature of responding to a disaster or some sort of i guess more I call, routine emergency like an industrial accident or, or something like that uh,
2: the discuss, uh, discussion is there, but uh conclusions are still limited unfortunately it becomes uh, very political uh, quickly. Yeah, I mean. So the training on the handing over for example, of victims of war and so on bringing people to hospitals across borders uh, that's obviously uh, that's uh, well done. Uh, uh, it operates very well uh, but the the further discussion uh, and also how to operate under active uh, fire and things like that, that's often uh, obviously a very touchy topic. Mm. Yeah.
1: But I think, I think you just touched on that then. I think one of the, the greatest successes for your project is really looking at how do you enable people to cross borders for urgent medical care in, in hospital. I know there's been a range of other successes as well uh, for the team, and it really is a testament to yourself and the team working in this space, but also the actors that have kind of bought into this process. What are some of the other kind of really good news stories, Albrecht, that, have cut, that has come out of this partnership and this dialogue? I think the number one is really the, the constantly uh, active communication
2: between the parties mm. that was not existing. So discussing situations, discussing even what happened, even if it's traffic accidents, can we help support each other? What happens if it's, uh, the, the road is somewhere crossing uh, an area where the Palestinian administration is active, things like that? Uh, but also the, uh, discussing preparedness topics. How do you do this? Can we... For example, I mean, for a long time, Palestinian authorities were not able to use certain equipment and material for security reasons. Talking about that. Can we use that? Can we uh, give this team? I don't know. Can the NGO X uh, use this equipment? It's for this and that. So The constant communication, I think, might be even the the best thing and most Mm. important Uh, to train together. It's also a very good thing because then they get more familiar with each other. Then it really works out in a disaster case. And the third is mostly the the, uh, the standard operation procedures that uh, it took ten years uh, to draft them, to work on them, but they're now in place and can be used. Then in a case of a disaster, there's no misunderstanding and there's clarity how for Palestinian areas can be reached by international relief, by international mm. uh, teams. <clears throat> I think these are the, the key points. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, there's obviously still uh, a lot to do. I mean, it needs to become more operational. It yeah. needs to involve more actors. Make sure it's not uh, while the cooperation between certain individuals is really uh, Better than ever thought it can happen. It needs to be more on the organizational and institutional level happening. And obviously, I mean, we, we see this very, very, very much uh, currently in this situation. Uh, the topic of Gaza must be at a certain point really on the table. Yeah. On the side of this project, we, we had been working on that, and also colleagues of the UN have uh, worked always on that also after I left. Um, but it means we also involving obviously the authorities must be improved solutions must be found for that i
1: was just going to ask that question because i think there has been Mm -hmm. so many successes that have come out of this project And, and and again as i said it really is a testament to those involved but as we all kind of know what's going on at the moment uh have they, I guess, how, how are some of those solutions? How are those communication uh, channels going? How, do you feel like they will stand the test of time with some of the recent conflict and tension going on in the area? What do you, what do you see as the kind of that long-term um, sustainability yeah. of the project? Do you think that foundation's been built that it can continue and can survive through something like what we're seeing at the moment? Thanks. Yeah, that's a key question.
2: If I look at the situation currently, you know, the cooperation between the emergency services uh, from the Israeli side and the Palestinian side, uh, it always focuses, obviously, on the the ones who are under the authority of the uh, Palestinian administration in Ramallah. If I look at that cooperation, yes, uh, currently it looks that uh, on this non-political side, it's uh, working, it's uh, continuing, it's not directly affected. Uh, Mm. The Israeli side is always on the lines that this is a a war against Hamas and not against the Palestinian administration. And you see this reflected in the cooperation between them. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we currently don't really know what's the, the future of the region and uh, uh, what role will Hamas have in the future. Um, it will most probably not disappear uh, also after yeah. this war. So it's the question, does the Palestinian administration also in future fully represent all Palestinians? Most probably not. And then there's the big question. How do we continue uh, with other actors that are very different, obviously, from the Palestinian administration? Hamas is a terror organization uh, that's not seeking any cooperation, neither with UN nor uh, with Israeli emergency services. So this uh, is currently a big question mark. How to continue what can be done uh, for the people and how does the whole region look in future? So it's very hard now uh, to say what Mm. can be really the, the future of the cooperation because disaster diplomacy as a concept normally looks into cooperation between actors who are at least have an interest to cooperate. yes yeah. yeah. must be limited sometimes you need to guide them too we had this in the beginning of the dialogue some we had this also in other parts of the world sometimes you have to really show them what's the interest yeah i don't think that counts for an organization for a terror organization obviously there is not uh, the That's the opposite of having an interest. So there is really a limitation of this concept. If a terror organization leads a certain area, how do you connect to any of the authorities?
1: I almost get the sense that that diplomacy, that element of diplomacy, plays so strongly into that that notion of sustainability. Because I, I, you know, again, no expert on the area, but I get the sense that you know this area has been under conflict for many years. Um, you know, these these tensions and these conflicts are not recent. And if it's not this conflict, there will be another one, or there will be some other actor coming into that space. So it's about. Yeah, that that really interesting about how does dis- diplomacy set the foundation for sustainability?
2: Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Um, the diplomacy in it, yeah, often. Uh, I mean, uh, it's also creating a space where the professional side, the the, the 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 disaster managers, the experts on resilience and preparedness, can cooperate uh, and really open a channel for that. Uh, that. That's the key point. Is this given mm. or not? Uh, And again, uh, what is the consequence for every professional uh, to cooperate? Um, Is there room that they can, on the only operational level, cooperate? I mean, the example, obviously, a lot of high-ranking people leading uh, in in Gaza are on the one hand coming from the professional side but have to be at the same time uh, part of Hamas. Is the threat they face uh, too big or is the interest to save lives maybe higher? Mm. Uh, that's often a question and often there's simply then not the room for them to maneuver in this field. The, mm. the threat and the surveillance is simply too
0: big. So talking about Gaza there, and it sounds like, well, that's just, I guess it is what it is at the moment. But what about um, the relationship between Israel and, um, and Jordan and, and Lebanon? Like your work involved um, Jordan and Lebanon as well, I understand. And, and what's, what's the relationship now um, in terms of emergency management and that diplomacy? Is that still continuing? Um, during this conflict?
2: It it is, uh, especially on Jordan, it's uh, continuing. On Lebanon, it's always uh, only informal contacts uh, and often uh, difficult uh, via mediation, going no direct uh, contacts there. Um, On on Jordan, uh, the cooperation is continuing. Obviously, we saw that uh, the kingdom has very much uh, had uh, voiced a very uh, pro-Palestinian side Uh, and stand on this, uh, which is uh, natural. I mean, it's uh, obviously, I mean, there's a high percentage of the population in Jordan is nowadays uh, coming from Palestine. Uh, There's pressure on the government in this direction. I don't think that the the reaction there from Jordan uh, was a surprise uh, at all. Uh, That does not uh, affect directly the the, the day-to-day corporations between them. I mean, there's a high economic interest on keeping this running. I I don't expect a long-term damage if it's getting not worse uh, the situation. On that, uh, the day-to-day activities are, are given. There's a contact between them, uh, between the emergency services existing. Obviously, it's not such a strong contact like with the Palestinian side. It simply, there's not feel so much activity currently needed. But uh, there are trainings happening and things like that. There's education of emergency workers from Jordan. Yeah, on the uh, Israeli side, so uh, I don't think it will be so much affected. The interest for both sides is just too high, uh, but what is announced in the media is obviously something different because of the circumstances <clears throat> than what is really happening behind the doors.
0: Yeah, like always is, I think. And it made me just sort of wonder there as well. So in terms of these um, countries we're speaking about, what's their level of maturity in terms of emergency management? Do they have the same sort of fire trucks that you have in Europe and are they, are they sort of have a high rescue capability? Like what's the level of maturity in terms of their disaster response and recovery?
2: Uh, I think on all sides, uh, there's definitely room for improvement given. I okay, mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, not, not saying that European uh, emergency services are all, also very mature and uh, there are also huge gaps, to, to be frank, existing. Um, this just, uh, I mean, Pal- Palestine has obviously uh, an issue to develop uh, their emergency services because. Uh, They're not really having a a country they can work with. Uh, There are a lot of different areas, you know, the area B, C and A. Um, They cannot uh, operate freely uh, in their territory. Uh, So there are certain limitations also uh, simply given to develop that. uh, I mean, there are good concepts and they are very, uh, very much self-driven people that are working on strengthening the system still uh, from the funding uh, to the operational side. uh, there are huge gaps. Uh, but the Kingdom of Jordan has done uh, a huge, huge work on improving uh, their systems. And uh, some of us who come to Jordan will be surprised what they see. There are many, many fields mm. where Jordan has, uh, together with the international supporters, obviously from the development side, uh, developed very strongly. So from the National Emergency Operations Center to response times, uh, that is definitely uh, surprising for many. Still, uh, there are still gaps in the system and uh, the need to improve. And obviously, there is also a need uh, for funding. The the country cannot finance it uh, on their own. So uh, still work to be done. But uh, I think in many fields, uh, quite surprisingly well-developed, both on the more conflict-related side, but also on natural disasters. Israel has a long tradition, obviously, in this field Uh, on emergency services, on response systems. uh, Still, uh, also on the Israeli side, I mean, for uh, obvious reasons, the the focus was for a long time, mostly for conflict related. Um, On the the natural disaster side, there's definitely still room where you can improve, uh, make the the country more resilient. Uh, Mm -hmm. But again, I mean, in current situations, again, the focus is simply on conflict uh, for obvious reasons.
0: And I was really interested to, to read recently around the Dead Sea Fault, uh, and there's this strong possibility that um, a, an earthquake is likely to occur with a magnitude greater than six uh, in the next decade, and it's thought that this, this recent um, earthquake in Turkey or in Syria might have actually accelerated the probability of this occurring. What would such an event like this, um, such a huge earthquake, mean for this region? Uh,
2: Andrea, it would be really devastating, to be frank. Uh,
0: none of the parties is really
2: prepared for such an event. Um, worst, obviously, it will be in Palestine. Uh, they simply from the building codes. For a long time, there was no building code. People could not afford. Everybody was building themselves self-made houses. Mm. Uh, think about the second intifada in, in Nablus, which would be mostly the worst affected area. Uh, in Palestinian areas, uh, houses were built up to certain floors uh, without a real uh, foundation. They were leaned against the mountain because there was no inspection or nothing, no authority in place during these days. Uh, so there could have really a devastating effect and a lot more has to be done. Uh, to to get a little bit more ready uh, but also the the israeli side would not be uh, prepared there are areas that have old housing uh, that have not enough uh, emergency services on the ground often tricky in the mountains even if there's a program to retrofit housing you can imagine if you have to retrofit a whole country it just takes a long time and costs a lot mm. um, same Uh, preparedness on the Jordanian side, uh, while new buildings have higher standards, uh, the the old housing, for example, the old city of uh, Amman, most people would be very, very badly affected. So it it would be a really, really devastating scenario there. Not sure what it would mean also for the security. It could be said it's used, obviously, in times of political tensions for conflict activities, so uh, altogether a, a very bad scenario, definitely.
1: I want to ask uh, a broader question in a second mm-hmm. about lessons learned because I think through this project, you really have inco- uncovered some some really interesting kind of best practices and and strategies to use into the future in, in these spaces. But there was one I was really interested to read about, and it was this notion of diplomats versus DRR professionals. And I think the point was being made around it's actually what you, you found was it was easier to teach a, a disaster risk reduction professional diplomacy to work in the space than it was to actually teach diplomatics, DRR, and then get them operating the space. Can you unpack that, that kind of lesson and that, that notion that you figured out while you were working through this project?
2: Just the, the thanks for that. Yes, the, we had, in fact, a uh, very nicely organized also a working group from the United Nations University who invited uh, both practitioners, uh, diplomats, and also researchers on this topic. Uh, and we looked into the experience and uh, a disaster diplomacy project with diplomats that had a background a little bit in disaster um, that normally didn't work out. They were always focused more on Yeah, how do we resolve now conflict uh, Mm. outcomes uh, and so on, always on the political level. And people were immediately backing off and uh, we had also the experience in the professional dialogue that there was agreement that no diplomats are allowed uh, at the tables. They were very strict on that, otherwise it was felt. uh, It goes immediately into a different field of work. It's again about peace mediations, political conflict and not so much about the cooperation on emergency. While if you uh, teach uh, disaster practitioners on the diplomatic sides, on the do's and don'ts in this field and how to lead from the disaster side into more political or more diplomatic gains. Mm. Uh, that was seen as uh, non-dangerous by the parties, unacceptable on the reaching more the outcomes they wanted to reach, more focused on their needs uh, and not on the interests of the international community. So in the end, we we always came to this conclusion. Uh, it must be the emergency practitioners that we need to train for that or uh, give them a little bit more tools at their hand.
1: Uh, but not the other way around and make sure that diplomats mm. are more kept out of this field. Interesting. Maybe there's hope for Andrew and Joshua to take their DR uh, careers into another space <laughs> in, in later life. Exactly. We can uh, pivot and turn. <laughs>
0: <Yes>. <laughs> I want to be a <laughs> <laughs> Um I, I
1: know I just said that I, I, I wanted to ask a broader yeah. question because I think we, we have touched on some of the, the lessons learned, obviously that, that notion of... Um, you know who, What are the right personalities to be working in this space? I know earlier we talked about the importance of trust and I know you identified that as a key lesson learned out of this project. But are there any other kind of key lessons that you really have uncovered through this process that um, you kind of see as the, the new cornerstones for disaster diplomacy moving forward?
2: I think there are a few Uh, just uh, looking into some of them. I mentioned already, you know, it's uh, trust building is key. It is um, the key point there. You need a key uh, facilitator of the business that seems to be uh, a neutral uh, entity, a neutral person in that uh, besides uh, the knowledge uh, of of our disaster field really a deep understanding whether the parties have the feeling really, okay, we, we get something out of it, we can gain ourselves. Uh, there's something in for us. Uh, besides understanding the different stakeholders, uh, who has the power influence, but also what is their need, what is their interest, who are the parties who, who will support you in that. I mean, just one example, for me, I was very much a beginner on the Middle East when I started this project. It seemed to be the Israeli disaster management part of the military seemed to be one block. But in fact, that was not the case at all. Uh, the civilian part of this military side, which is there existing obviously had in fact a big interest to build up uh, the Palestinian side because only by that they could get rid of responsibilities. They could not fulfill it anymore because mm. it was on the other side, so to say. So understanding these dynamics, who is really supporting you, who is with you, who is against you, for what reasons, uh, all these were, were topics and uh, again, a long term funding is needed. It's a long term process uh, that needs to be enabled. And sometimes there might be a year when nothing is happening. Although this must be possible and not then simply said it's a failure, but maybe this is part of the process to come to success. Uh, All in all, uh, I think it's important to to have this time and this experience uh, with such projects. Otherwise, uh, it can also be you can imagine if a project really fails in this field, they will be for years now, they will not try another project in this field. So you could also obviously do harm with such a project. Or if you uh, enter this process on the side of, of one of the parties, you can only do harm by something like that. So the experience, and the long-term perspective are really key for such projects.
0: Mm. Now we've talked a lot about your work in the Middle East, but that's not the extent of what your work has involved. I've done plenty of work elsewhere, and I want to talk briefly about your work in developing island states. So you've done some work in the Caribbean and Vanuatu. Can you take us through what's that work involved? What's it all about? Andrew, thanks. Yeah, no, we have.
2: Uh Seen a lot of islands uh, during the last 10 years, worked with many of them. Uh, Normally, we we try to build up uh, the overall emergency systems. You can imagine, I mean, it's nice to have trainings. It's nice to have new equipment. uh, But often the problems, especially of SIDS, are uh, to be found somewhere completely different. It could be in the legal framework. uh, The personnel does not have a certain security to work in certain areas and so on. So we are often looking into the overall systems, even if it's not always directly related to emergency preparedness and response in order to find then, a long-term investment plan and uh, plan how to build up the system. Uh, so that we really identify what are the, the hurdles for the development of such systems in the end simply with the goal that uh, small island developing states uh, can help their people as the first line of response in the small day-to-day disasters, but also in the larger ones and build up whole systems. It's often very, very rewarding work. Uh, people are very welcoming and uh, you can see that there is often a real outcome. Uh, they are suffering from many. You look at Vanuatu. I'm not sure if any island is there where you have more reports of written, more uh, draft agendas and so on of large organizations. But in the end, People get overwhelmed by, by all these things and nothing is in the end then really implemented. So then it's very rewarding to see that you're coming really step by step process to build up and make sure that, that the basic foundations are first before then the, the fancy climate adaptation agenda comes to make sure they can deal with these things themselves. So it's a,
0: it's a pleasure working with them. No, it sounds interesting, and I like tropical islands, but I'm sure it's like, yeah, these things are, these things are more serious than that. But um, And I think the work of, um, I guess, the disaster risk in places like Haiti and, and some of those places in the Caribbean is pretty clear. And I think in Vanuatu it's one of the – The highest rate in terms of disaster risk of any country in the world with sea level rise and the impact of the, um, I think there's an ocean fault there somewhere with a volcano and there's earthquakes and there's everything else there. And I guess the risk of um, cyclones as well is, is huge.
1: And I think it's a really important point you may all break around that notion of doing the simple things right first before you can do the the more technical stuff. Andrew gets really sick of my sayings, but I always say that it's better to bake the cake before you ice it. And I think so many people go to try and ice the cake before they (laughs) bake it, and it's about Some of those really simple things, but we know that they're the foundation and the cornerstones to DRR and how we actually then enable ourselves to do that more fancy stuff and invest further funding into that space. one final question I, I really want to kind of leave the listeners with and and it's something that I know Andrew and I are quite passionate about is is given that the industry we work in given the challenges where we're kind of steering down the barrel of into the future with with disasters and, and climate change is about how Andrew and I and 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 the the podcast can in a sense start to build a, a, an industry that um, you know that is ready uh, to, to deal with those future problems and one of those things and I know, we talk a lot about in the diversity spaces, if you can't see it and you can't hear it and you can't imagine it, then how do you become it? So one question we always like to leave our listeners with is really about understanding how do how did our guests get into emergency management? How did you find yourself on this career path? Um, I, I'm really interested to understand, yeah, what is this? How did you end up in Israel and Palestine and working in this space? What's your career journey?
2: That's not a very straightforward one for me, <laughs> uh, to be frank. I mean, I was already, you know, for uh, as, a, as a kid, I was a volunteer for Red Cross. But in the area where I came from, uh, that's quite normal that you're a volunteer for one of the organizations. So it was not really leading me directly to the past. Uh, but when I studied and in fact, uh, I studied history, not a, a direct normal study, which we find around us normally. Uh, But in these days, uh, I studied in Munich and most of my fellow students in my field of uh, study were, in fact, uh, people from the former Yugoslavia. It was the time of the the wars in the Balkans. And that brought me to the contemporary side, the conflict management side, crisis management. Mm. And uh, that was also my start. In fact, uh, I started after my PhD uh, for the UN, for the peacekeeping department, more in the conflict and crisis management side. And after a few years, uh, with a few missions, I said like, yeah, well, it was nice, but I think I go back home. But the moment I was back home uh, with the German Crisis Management Center, I felt so bureaucratic. And the same moment, uh, <laughs> a former colleague <laughs> in the UN approached me and said like, uh, come on, uh, we need somebody in Austria for the office for the coordination of humanitarian affairs. And uh, that was a little bit my way back. And then in the the UNDAC system, the United Nations Disaster Assessment coordination team responding to large scale disasters on behalf of the UN. And uh, this was my way back into the system. And uh, since then, I I stayed there. I wanted to go just for a short moment. I thought I go a few months uh, to Geneva, to the UN, and it stayed for a long time. Then, And now I'm, I'm still in a crisis in humanitarian business, disaster management, but it's a very rewarding area, I feel. Mm. And,
0: yes, it uh, certainly a lot is. lot of work waiting still. I think it's a growing space and mm-hmm. there's just plenty of work to do and it's it's something that I think Josh and I always sort of joke that we've kind of found ourselves in this industry that we certainly do love but there's something that's going kind to of very, I mean, it's very satisfying. There's just so much work left to do and I think that the case in in Israel and in Palestine and the other places that you've been working, a perfect example of of the growing risk around the world at the moment. So it's been really a fascinating discussion today, talking to you about the Middle East and your thoughts and experiences. And I think everything going on the Middle East at the moment highlights how important this disaster diplomacy is. For our listeners, you can see more from our conversation today on our website about Albrecht's work at com. Dr. Albrecht Beck, thanks for joining us on Me, Myself and Disaster.
2: Thanks so much. It was a pleasure.
1: Join us again next time on Australia's Leading Disaster Podcast as we talk to more interesting guests from across the world about their experiences during disasters. We'll catch you then.
0: Thanks for listening to Me, Myself, and Disaster. Subscribe today at me